Good afternoon or good morning, depending on where you are. Uh, welcome to the virtual Cato Institute. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm a vice president and director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. And we're here for a special event uh, about uh, uh, the freedom of speech and the freedom of religion, which really are at the heart of liberty. For hundreds of years, people have flocked to the United States to escape religious persecution and censorship. Judge David Strass of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit joins us for a special address reflecting on how his grandparents' harrowing experiences during the Holocaust shaped his beliefs on these precious First Amendment freedoms. Following his address, we'll be joined by nationally renowned First Amendment expert Eugene Volokh, himself an immigrant, and just last week celebrated 46 years since he came to the United States uh, to discuss these issues, as well as the recent rise in anti-Semitism in the United States. I will introduce uh, both these gentlemen briefly, and then we will turn it over to Judge Strass. He joined the Eighth Circuit on January 31st, 2018. Before serving on that court, Judge Strass was an Associate Justice of the Minnesota Supreme Court, and before that was a faculty member at the University of Minnesota Law School, teaching and writing on federal courts and jurisdiction, constitutional and criminal law. He received his BA, MBA, and JD from the University of Kansas, uh, and after law school clerk for Judge Melvin Brunetti of the Ninth Circuit, Judge Michael Ludig of the Fourth Circuit, and Justice Clarence Thomas, who this week, I think tomorrow, celebrates 30 years on the Supreme Court. And then Eugene Volokh teaches First Amendment law and runs the First Amendment amicus brief clinic at UCLA School of Law. He's been my counsel uh, in that capacity. He clerked for another Ninth Circuit judge, Alex Kaczynski, and then Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Uh, Eugene is the author of the textbook, The First Amendment and Related Statutes, and more than 90 law review articles. He's a member of the American Law Institute, the American Heritage Dictionary Usage Panel, uh, and the founder of the Volokh Conspiracy, a blog that was hosted by the Washington Post and is now at Reason Magazine. And in addition to his academic work, he's filed briefs in more than 125 cases and has argued more than 30. So with that, I'll turn it over to Judge Strass. Thanks very much. Thank you, Ilya, and thanks to Eugene uh, for participating as well. Um, as the title probably suggests, this speech hits close to home for me. Uh, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, and one of the fortunate things for me is that I have their personal records. It tells the story of their lives, from their hardships to their liberation to their life after liberation. Their stories and examples have shaped me in, a, in a many ways, perhaps even in ways I cannot fully appreciate. And I've come to realize that their stories have done more than just affect me personally. They have become a part of who I am and how I view the world around me. They've also strengthened my appreciation for the First Amendment, and in particular, its role in guaranteeing a free society. Indeed, years before I ever studied the free exercise of religion, and the freedom of speech in law school, I learned about those concepts, at least abstractly, from my grandparents. My grandparents, Walter and Malvina Strauss, were lucky to survive. They met for the first time in a liberation camp in Germany and were married soon thereafter. Although they originally planned to move to Israel, they ultimately decided to settle in Kansas City. My grandmother, Born Malvina Nyman, grew up in Hungary as one of seven children. Her family was devout. 
She spoke fondly of the rich traditions of the Jewish faith that were part of her early life, as well as the custom of speaking Yiddish at home. Her relatively peaceful childhood was torn apart, however, at age 18, when Nazi soldiers dragged my grandmother and her family from their home. At gunpoint, they were forced to walk all day to a cattle train, which then transported them to Auschwitz. Of her family, most of whom I never knew, only three sisters survived. Fortunate that she also did not perish, my grandmother suffered unspeakable harms that left her reluctant to share her experiences. Loss of family members, vicious beatings that led to permanent blindness in one eye, and verbal attacks. She was frequently called a damn Jew, all contributed to lifelong depression and a hesitancy to speak about her time in the concentration camps. Despite spending the better part of several summers with her as a child, I cannot say that I really ever knew her except for her post-Holocaust life. My grandfather was different. He shared his thoughts on life and the Holocaust in particular with anyone who would listen, especially toward the end of his life. For that reason, I will focus in particular on his story, leaving a dis deeper discussion of my grandmother's experiences for another time. My grandfather, Walter Strauss, was young when he was shipped off to the concentration camps. Born in 1924, he was first sent to a labor camp and then to Auschwitz in 1943 at the age of 19. He was one of too few to survive. He passed away in 1995. After I had known him for only two decades, but the lessons from his life shaped me to this very day. I did not fully realize his impact or truly understand his suffering until many years after his death. In a way, this journey into his life is my way of honoring him. My first memories of my grandfather were from a young age. I grew up knowing him as a survivor, watching how he lived his life after liberation. By the time I came into this world, he was already afflicted with multiple sclerosis a disease that took, took away his ability to walk, to write, and to take care of himself. Despite all that he had seen and endured, however, he was a great and giving man who never complained. Rather than turning inward, he turned towards others in his life. He made a lasting impression on everyone he met, particularly in his efforts to reach out to and work beha on behalf of other survivors. He once said, and I quote, Encouraging words from other survivors have made it possible for me to speak. For the ones who did not survive, the ones who died after their liberation, and the ones who are unable to speak for themselves. For him, telling his story was never easy. Despite his liberation in 1945, it was not until the mid-1970s that my grandfather was able to speak about his experiences. And even then, he rarely did so to us, his grandchildren, because he feared that the horrors of his own life would somehow jade ours. Speaking in 1979, he observed, only in the last three or four years have I been able to get the courage to speak up. For many years, the feeling that you were not allowed to speak during imprisonment stayed with me. 
And I'm sure many other survivors share that feeling too. We are crippled emotional, emotionally as a result of what we had to go through. We will, we try, and we must keep on fighting even though it is so difficult to do. It is of course no exaggeration to say that those imprisoned in Nazi Germany were deprived of their ability to speak. Yet even in the years before his imprisonment, my grandfather and others like him were forced to wear a yellow Mogan David, the star with the name Jude on it. The Nazis restricted where he could travel and censored his mail. He could not send anything to foreign countries and the government read everything coming from the outside. One time after intercepting his mail, the Gestapo questioned my grandfather who recalled that he was happy he got, a lot, got out alive because the Gestapo was tremendously harsh on anybody. It didn't even have to be a Jew. Anyone who was opposed to the Nazi regime would be punished. It is fair to say that even before he actually became a prisoner, he was effectively a prisoner in his own country, stripped of his right to speak. Once he arrived at the camps, as one might imagine, things only got worse. Prisoners were forced to remove all of their clothing, sit as part of their hair, and watch as numbers were tattooed on their forearms. Then the guards made them work. As my grandfather recalled, while marching, all of a sudden, I saw one guard step close to a prisoner, pull his cap from his head, and throw it about 20 feet away. The prisoner, who had to have a cap, jumped out of line to retrieve it. A gunshot followed. The prisoner was killed. What for? Because he had stepped out of line because this guard was a barbarian who did not care if he shot one or he shot 10. It was right for him to kill. It was right for him to destroy other human beings. Despite witnessing and experiencing some of the cruelest acts of man during, the, during, during his time at Auschwitz, my grandfather continued to see the best in people. In fact, he thought that decency and compassion could be found in even the most horrific conditions. He relayed stories about the repeated act of kindness that spared his life, acts performed by fellow prisoners in the concentration camps who had nothing to gain and everything to lose. One particularly moving story involved his interactions with the prisoner nurses in the camp hospital, a cruelly ironic description because many who visited never made it out alive. Its purpose was to separate the weak from the strong and to make sure that only the strong were returned to work. As one might expect, my grandfather became frail and malnourished during his time at Auschwitz. The camp's policy was that no patient could stay in the hospital for more than two weeks. The nurses knew that he could not recover so quickly, which meant certain death for him. So they risked their own lives to save him by moving him from room to room and falsifying hospital records. These acts of kindness, came, which came at great risk to the nurses, spared my grandfather. He recalled the story in his own words. After about two weeks, I was told, all of a sudden, you're going to be released today, even though you are still too sick. But don't worry, you will only be released on paper. You will not leave the hospital. I will try to keep you as long as possible 
until you are well again. I was moved to a different room. I did not know why at the time, but I was told just keep quiet. In another example of humanity in the midst of darkness, he told the story of three of his fellow prisoners, three dear friends of his, who attempted to escape from Auschwitz. My grandfather assisted in their plan, which also included another prisoner, the camp electrician. The prisoner electrician would short out the fence surrounding the camp, and in that moment, my grandfather's friends would escape. My grandfather, who had provided stolen or had provided civilian clothes to them, was privy to the plan because he was invited to escape with them. However, as a non-Polish speaking, my grandfather knew that he would be detected outside the fences. So he stayed behind as his fellow, as his friends carried out their plan. In a cruel act of betrayal, the prisoner electrician revealed the plan to the guards, but not knowing of my grandfather's involvement. When his friends were caught and hanged as punishment, they could have ad admitted my grandfather's involvement. Instead, they kept it secret. As he watched his friends pay the ultimate price, my, my grandfather never forgot their deep loyalty, which had saved him. To put the rest of it, in my grandfather's words. On a Sunday afternoon, my three friends were hanged on the gallows, erected in the middle of the camp, a place where every morning thousands of prisoners stood at attention for roll call prior to work. As part of my work, I took my dear friends down from the gallows, knowing that they had not betrayed me. They had kept word. I had survived. Deprived of his ability to speak, during his formative years, my grandfather made it his life's mission to share his story. The difficult and sometimes painful lessons that it conveyed were why it was so important for other people to hear it. As I grew up, I realized that my grandfather was someone who had strong beliefs and not backed down in the face of adversity. As all of my colleagues, both past and present, will attest, he passed that trait on to me. One example comes from my Supreme Court clerkship, when I disagreed with a position taken by Justice Thomas. I cannot say which case or even what the case was about because I continue to owe a duty of confidentiality to the court. But what I can say is that I spent more than 30 minutes trying to convince Justice Thomas to think about an issue differently. Now, I want you to think about that. I just turned 28 years old four years removed from law school, and I was telling a then 11-year veteran of the United States Supreme Court to reconsider his views. As those who know Justice Thomas might suspect, I did not persuade him. In fact, he told me at the conclusion of our discussion that I had actually convinced him that his own views were correct. But advocating for my beliefs was the right thing to do. Why? Justice Thomas taught me a lesson that day by showing me that he respected my willingness to express my sincerely held views and to stand up for my beliefs, even if I might be, even if I might be the only one holding them. This lesson echoed one that I learned from my grandfather years before. Defending your beliefs, no matter how unpopular they are, 
is always the right thing to do. There was another lesson in that experience too. Justice Thomas listened closely to my views, even though I suspect that he was already firmly set in his own. My grandfather taught me that as important as it is to defend your own beliefs, it is equally important to listen closely to what other people have to say. These lessons still stick with me today. The Supreme Court has long held that the First Amendment reflects these values. It protects the right to receive information and ideas. The Nazi regime, of course, was fundamentally opposed to any ideas except those that they endorsed. It restricted speech in every way you can imagine, from compelling Jews to wear the Mogan David on their sleeves, to punishing citizens for saying anything critical of the government or its leaders. It's nothing short of remarkable that my grandfather, after experiencing such wide and systematic suppression, became the avid and curious listener that he was. Once he came to America, my grandfather sought out the community of other Holocaust survivors. Perhaps most significantly, he constantly reminded fellow survivors how important it was to be proud of being Jewish. His stories remind me that my own Jewish heritage and faith are an integral part of who I am. And fortunately for me, the country I had the privilege to grow up in is one that has protected the exercise of my Jewish faith. Again, by virtue of the First Amendment. I feel blessed that I, unlike my grandparents, have never had to choose between my religion and my life. Consider what the First Amendment tells us about what it means to be an individual. Unlike what my grandparents experienced in Nazi Germany, no one in this country is just a number, with or without a tattoo. Our values may be different, our beliefs may be worlds apart, and still the government has no right to tell us what to say or what to believe. Importantly, we are allowed, but we are not forced to wear our beliefs on our sleeves. We can speak about them, we can pray about them, and we can even associate with others who have the same beliefs, all under the First Amendment. These ideas could not be more fundamentally at odds with how the Nazis treated my grandparents. During their time in the concentration camps, their captors made every effort to erase all evidence of their humanity and their sense of identity. They tattooed numbers on their arms and took away their names, their belongings, and even in their clothes. They were told that they were Jews and nothing more, but that they were prohibited from acting like one. Luckily for my grandfather, he was able to maintain his own sense of identity and humanity, despite the best efforts of his captors. He always remembered the importance of maintaining connections to community, identity, and religion. Even through my grandfather's most difficult days, he never forgot who he was or the community to which he belonged. So what does all this have to do with judging the law? To start, his experiences remind me about the wisdom of the Constitution, from setting out the enumerated rights to protecting them through checks and balances, the separation of powers. It also brings into sharp focus the importance of the rule of law in our society, in large part 
the evils of the Holocaust were the result of the personal views of just a few powerful individuals. Those who were able to use the law and the legal system to achieve the ends that they desired. The danger is never too far away, and we always have to be vigilant about making sure our liberties are not whittled away, no matter how noble the cause may be. One case from my time on the Minnesota Supreme Court stands as an example. In State versus Crowley, the question was whether the state could criminalize the making of knowingly false statements about police misconduct to a police officer. Now that law may sound innocent enough, but as I noted in my dissent, after diving into founding era sources, it came close to prohibiting the very type of speech that is at the heart of the First Amendment, speech government. And it did so by attaching a criminal sanction, likely deterring many citizens from making any complaints whatsoever about police misconduct, true or otherwise. First Amendment doctrine calls this the chilling effect. Of course, the Nazi regime also made it a point of defining truth and falsehood too, leaving few willing to speak. Another case to think about is Telescope Media versus Lucero, which involved a couple who produced wedding videos through a family-owned business. They wanted their videos to promote a certain message celebrating, cele celebrating marriage as a sacrificial covenant between one man and one woman. For that reason, the couple was unwilling to produce wedding videos that depicted same-sex weddings. The problem for them was that a Minnesota anti-discrimination statute said that if they wanted to produce wedding videos for anyone, they had to produce them for everyone, regardless of the message that they were trying to express. On behalf of the court, I authored a majority opinion holding that the message that they were trying to express through their videos was protected First Amendment expression no matter how unpopular their views might be. Minnesota's law turn was a form of compelled speech because it required the couple to speak favorably about same-sex marriage once they made the decision to speak favorably about opposite-sex marriage. The point is this, if we decide the government can prohibit offensive speech, speech really isn't free anymore. It would surprise no one that I am personally offended, personally offended by the decision of the Supreme Court in the 1970s to allow neo-Nazis to march through Skokie, a, a city filled with Jewish residents. But that's not the point. As the Supreme Court has put it, the bedrock principle of free speech is that the government may not prohibit the expression of an idea simply because society itself finds the idea offensive or disagreeable. I am worried that this foundational principle gets lost today. Free speech, remember, is also a right that we enjoy. It's not one that either one of my grandparents had. As my grandfather said of his experience at Auschwitz, I saw then what concentration camps meant the destruction of the human being, of his dignity, of his self-esteem, self 
of his confidence, of his beliefs in God, and of his beliefs in his fellow man. In wrapping up, I wanna let my grandfather's words once again speak for themselves. My grandfather, in addressing the New American Club in Kansas City in 1979, said the following. I'm sitting before you in my wheelchair, the lifeline for my daily independence. Disabled from the after effects of malnutrition and mental stress during the times I was a slave laborer and prisoner in labor in the concentration camps. I sit here before you with, with extreme physical and emotional pain. With all of my handicaps, I am humble and thankful that I'm able to be here and represent the ones that cannot be here. You who came here because you care for your fellow man, listen. Spread my words around. The people who are not here should know that there's a spokesman who knows what it means to survive, who cannot forget his sufferings in the camps, and who knows the sufferings of the survivors who cannot speak for themselves. I was transported in a freight car unknowing my destination to Auschwitz. I was then taken on an open truck to Auschwitz-Buna, the IG Farben chemical complex, which is part of the camp. I remember being stripped naked of civilian cloth, running through a cold April rain. I remember shivering not only from the cold, but also from the fear of what would happen next. A prisoner tattooing the number 117022 on my left forearm. Suddenly, I didn't have a name anymore. I was just a number. But even with no name, I still knew who I was. I still had my identity. I still knew about my upbringing, my roots. I was so young, a teenager. Already in my young years, I had experienced a life that most people never experience in a lifetime. My At that time, I could not comprehend that I would die. I probably didn't even understood, understand what death meant because I was so young. I had not lived enough. I had survived. Liberation. What did it mean to us? You try to find members of your family. They're not coming back. You immigrate to new and other countries, new surroundings, new language, new customs. You find a job. You work hard to support yourself and your new family. You get accustomed to your new country, a free human being. Suddenly your thoughts come back to a time when you were subjected to inhuman treatment. The joy of liberation and freedom somehow gets lost with inner feelings. Something is wrong with me. You question yourself, why did I survive? Why? All of a sudden, life is a struggle again. Who can you complain to? No one wants to believe that we are suffering from the after of the Holocaust. Some people believe us, but not the ones responsible for it. Right now, we are still fighting them for the damage done to us, to our rights. I am speaking facts and the truth for many survivors. We, the survivors, have to let the world know that we will never again allow another Holocaust. All of you here in this room, may I call you my friends, we up and let the world know 
that we are proud of our heritage. These words encapsulate my grandfather's spirit, not only because he survived the most unspeakable of tragedies, but because of who he is or who he became and what he taught me. It is important to remember not only the words never again, but that we must never forget what people like my grandparents endured and the lessons that we can learn from them. Grandpa, I remember and I will never forget. Thank you. Thanks very much, David, for that moving presentation. Uh, before we go to Eugene's comments, uh, two things. First, uh, however you're watching this, you're welcome to submit questions that we'll have, uh, audience questions after Eugene's comments, after some discussion uh, on our website. If you're virtually on Twitter or another platform, you can use hashtag Cato SCOTUS. For that matter, you can talk about the event using the hashtag Cato SCOTUS. Um, but also, I want to use moderator's prerogative to ask David a question before we even hear from Eugene while uh, the moving words of his grandfather are still fresh in our minds. And the example you gave of the famous uh, Supreme Court case with the neo-Nazis marching through Skokie and the, the, the court uh, uh, protected their First Amendment right to do so. What do you think your grandfather uh, or your grandmother would have said uh, about that Supreme Court decision? Did they have um, you know, layman's uh, understanding of the First Amendment and what it meant in that context? You know, they were always scared. It's an excellent question. They were always scared of it happening again. They were always scared of, of history repeating itself. And so I think that they would have been internally conflicted about it. I think on the one hand, they would have said, is this, I moved to this country only to see the neo-Nazis, um, you know, marching through a Jewish suburb. Are we, are, here we go again. On the other hand, um, I think they would have viewed things the same way I do uh, to some extent by saying, I didn't have the opportunity to freely speak when I was in Germany. And maybe it's a blessing in this country that, they, that, that those neo-Nazis have an opportunity to freely speak and express their views because it allows the expression of other views too. That by allowing even offensive speech, all speech gets to be aired, which is not a right that we enjoyed while we were in Nazi Germany. So I think, although I never asked him, we never really talked about anything like that. Um, I suspect that both of them would have been internally conflicted about it. Thanks. Uh, Eugene, please. Um, uh, uh, thanks, thanks very much for having me on. It's a great pleasure to be at any Cato event, but especially uh, commenting on the remarks of, of, of Judge Struss, uh, whose work I very much uh, appreciate and admire. Um, I wanted to say a few words, a little bit just about my history, because it uh, comes from the same continent. Uh, and uh, the Nazis also tried to kill my parents, although not as up close and personal. Uh, and uh, uh, my time in the Soviet Union, which is really, I was seven when I left, so it's not like I had a lot of personal experience, but uh, I, I learned from my parents and grandparents who, who spent uh, much of their lives there. Uh, uh, it also influences my views of, about free speech. And I also want to mention just a little bit about the, uh, the, uh, uh, the wedding videographer case, uh, because I think also kind of the thinking of, of Russian dissenters is, is relevant to that as well. Um, so uh, uh, my father was born in 1939 in, 
uh, in uh, uh, southern Russia, northern Caucasus, a city called Novorossiysk. And then I think uh, just his family moved to what was then Leningrad, which of course 1941, starting from 1941 to 1944, was under siege by the Germans. And I believe about one third of its residents died. Uh, fortunately, uh, my father survived. Uh, perhaps it was because his, his, his father was in the military. I think he was an officer, probably had some ways of, uh, of trying to help his family. My mother was born in Kiev in February of 1941. Uh, and uh, the very first day of the war, June 22nd, 1941, uh, that was one of the first targets for German bombings. Her father uh, was uh, a, um, uh, a, he was an engineer and I think a, a relatively high level official in, I, I want to say, an electric cable company, if I recall correctly. So in any event, so he was, of course, uh, 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 evacuated uh, in order to participate in war production because he was at that point in his in his early 40s he was much more useful uh, to, to help build the Russian war machine than to actually fight on the front uh, and thankfully I think probably in large part because of that she and my uh, uh, grandmother were evacuated to, to Siberia where they lived uh, uh, lived in a little village uh, in uh, during the war, my mother just uh, still remembers uh, uh, drinking uh, drinking milk that was just basically fresh out of the cow because it was all in a very kind of the, the, a lifestyle that would have been familiar to people in Russia 500 years before, probably. Uh, so in any event, they managed to survive. And by the way, one third of uh, uh, of the the Jews in the Ukraine uh, were killed by the by the Nazis as well. Uh, so, uh, so it, all of that was, of course, a very formative experience in their lives, but it was also part of uh, the Soviet era, and where really the only, the only good thing the Soviets actually did was they managed to withstand the Germans and to, did the lion's share, really, of the fighting, and certainly overwhelmingly the lion's share of the dying during World War II. Uh, so, um, so my parents came of age in, in Russia, and thankfully it wasn't Stalin's Russia anymore. And you might think of, of the Soviet era as, as more or less you might think of the Stalin era and then maybe the Brezhnev era, although there were others in between as well. Uh, but the Stalin era was where really you would get shot for saying things that, that the government disapproved of. In the Brezhnev era, uh, you'd get fired. You might sometimes get locked up in a, in a psychiatric institution. You'd get harassed by the police, uh, but Generally speaking, it was, you know, it was what we might call an ordinary run-of-the-mill uh, uh, dictatorship in some respects. Uh, not even more than dictatorship, maybe a totalitarian regime, but it wasn't. It wasn't as as murderous as Stalin was, or as Hitler was, uh, uh, even to, to, to domestic German dissenters. Um, and one of the questions that, of course, all Russians had to, to, to decide on is what do you do about it? Do you keep your head down and survive or do you try to fight it to become a dissident and such? And some people did the latter, very few, very few. It was a very hard, hard path, not for, not by any means for everyone or for all, but a tiny handful. And I, I think the rest all admired them, but it was understood that, you know, it was a very difficult path. So of course, one of the people who did take that path famously, famously was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, and he did. He was in the Gulag under under Stalin, and he wrote to expose him. But then he he wrote it during actually during the Khrushchev era, which was a relative thaw in between uh, Stalin's era and uh, Brezhnev's era. So his publications, I think, were first published under Khrushchev. Then, uh, as people 
began to crack down some more, he became the most prominent of the dissidents and eventually was expelled, expelled from Russia, which is, I think, very difficult for a writer who is both a Russian patriot and someone who writes in a language that uh, that uh, uh, is spoken only only in one one place in the world, really. Uh, so he uh, he moved to America and continued writing and speaking about, about the Soviet era. But the last essay that he wrote before being expelled from the from the Soviet Union in 1974 was a piece called "Жить не полжи," which is generally um, translated as to live not by lies. It's an interesting question. Maybe you should translate it as to live not by the lie. But uh, it was a political uh, uh, political uh, call to, to his fellow fellow Russians. Um, uh, not a legal document by any means or, or a document of legal analysis, but I'm writing an, an article. I've been noodling on it for 10 years now. I'm trying to think about it as a way of thinking about free speech doctrine, but in particular compelled speech doctrine. Uh, um, that uh, uh, he was writing about what he saw as the duty, the duty basically of every honest man to refuse to participate in the spread of what he believes to be lies. And he, by the way, stressed what he believes, right? He, you know, he had a particular view of was truth of lies, but he recognized other people had a different view. But he said that all of us, all of us have an obligation uh, to... Uh, Per, to engage in personal refusal to participate in the lie, to shake ourselves off and become honest people, to never raise a banner or a slogan that one does not share completely. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the, the principle behind it was, if you're going to be, if you're going to be somebody who people are willing to listen to, if you're going to be somebody who can lead in other things, because of course, Refusal to speak isn't enough to change the country in many ways. You need to also speak affirmatively. But if you're going to be somebody who who has who merits the respect of others and who has the self-respect necessary to do that, you have to personally refuse to participate in the lie. Uh, and uh, uh, that's something that I think echoes very well with what was otherwise not an easy doctrine, the doctrine of freedom from compelled speech that the court has announced. If you think about like search for truth or marketplace of ideas, how is that influence? How is, for example, uh, the requirement that somebody has a, a, a government prescribed slogan, live free or die on one's license plate. How is that, uh, uh, that uh, 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 undermine the search for truth? I mean, you know, you could still put up any bumper sticker you want to the contrary, but the Supreme Court in 1978 says, uh, says that is, uh, um, uh, that is something that uh, the government can't uh, uh, can't require one to do, uh, and uh, uh, the question is why. Likewise, with regard to the videographer, uh, that um, uh, excuse me, 1977 was the Woolley decision. Uh, the videographers in in the Telescope Media case. Like, where's the First Amendment problem in requiring someone to video record a, a same-sex wedding? You know, they don't have to, uh, uh, they, they, they aren't barred from speaking out against same-sex weddings. They can still put up a sign at their business, maybe, although maybe, maybe the government wanted to crack down on that too, but that's a separate case, uh, saying, I don't support same-sex weddings. They can still write op-eds about it. Uh, they're not going to be denied, their photo denied a photographer's license for that. They're just being required to record this wedding like they record others. What's the big deal? And I think Solzhenitsyn would have said, the big deal is that you're forcing someone to live by lies. You're forcing
forcing someone to, to, to participate in the creation of speech, creation of expression that they do not view as right. And maybe they're wrong, but they have to be true to themselves in this respect. And uh, uh, so I think that it, it's, it's an important principle, and I think it's a principle that one can learn from totalitarian regimes, or one of the ways they operate it is precisely by requiring people to mouth slogans and hoping that over time it'll kind of break their spirit in a way that even if they don't believe the slogans, they'll be unable to speak out against them. So, so I do think there's, there's a lot to be said about, uh, um, uh, 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 about uh, um, uh, free speech by understanding the experience of, to, of totalitarian regimes uh, and making sure we don't take any steps in that direction. Um, so so that, that's my thought on the matter. But I wanted to ask Judge Strauss a little bit uh, uh, about this. And it's partly devil's advocate, partly not. I mean, I think it's an, it's an interesting question that people who study kind of comparative analyses um, uh, might think about. Is, how much can we really learn from the outright, from, from, from the, the outright butcher regimes, from the, the regimes that are the worst of the worst? Uh, that, uh, uh, you know, the, first, I, I doubt that the free speech clause or even modern free speech doctrine would have helped much in Nazi Germany or in the Soviet era, right? When they were willing to ignore all the laws, they would have ignored that one as well. Uh, and uh, and in fact, actually, the Soviet Constitution had very very uh, uh, strong statements in favor of human rights that just weren't followed. Um, but beyond that, beyond that, you know, there are accommodations that people in free societies have to make. And just let's set aside free speech. What about freedom? We all believe in personal freedom, but. You know, there is the draft, which the Supreme Court, I think, correctly said is constitutionally permissible. We may be required to be called for jury service. You know, that's a form of compelled labor. Uh, you know, you can imagine an argument saying any, the, the Nazi regime and the Soviet regime shows that any compelled work on the part of any individual is per se, uh, uh, per se wrong. And in fact, certainly the Soviets had lots of uh, uh, slave labor camps as well. Uh, but on the other hand, you might say, well, that shows us that that level is wrong. Slavery shows us that that level of, of, of compulsion is wrong, but some amount of compulsion is a necessary feature of life in a decent society. Likewise, some amount of spe speech restrictions. Uh, Judge Strauss and I agree that uh, I think on many of the speech restrictions uh, are unconstitutional, but I think we'll probably agree that some are constitutional, that certain speech restrictions are permissible. So I wonder to what extent would your or my argument based on Solzhenitsyn be vulnerable to the argument that those talk about real extreme regimes and in a democratic regime such as ours and a basically free regime such as ours, maybe we should just focus entirely on the experience of similarly free countries, even when they've been less free than we'd like, like America during the Sedition Act era, where there were restrictions that are, that are improper, but you know maybe shouldn't be, shouldn't be uh, or excuse me, but 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 uh, didn't really suppress democracy writ large. Certainly, the Adams administration was probably thrown out of office, which shows there was democratic uh, uh, freedom there. Uh, or other, or maybe other countries like Europe or Canada, where maybe they have more restrictions than we'd like, but there are okay. more close. Eugene, to our I, I think we have the question. Let's let's let Judge Strauss answer it because we have a lot of uh, questions in the in the Q and A as well. Please. Yeah, so um, it, it, it's a it's a tough it's a tough question. Um, I mean, one thing to note is um, hate speech laws are you know prohibitions on hate speech are were all over Europe. Uh,
in the years preceding the Holocaust. They've been all over Europe and other areas of the world since the Holocaust. Um, you're right, Eugene, in the sense that if we had something like the First Amendment, I have no doubt um, that the, uh, the, the Nazis would have suppressed that right just like any others. But what I do think it allows us to do is to understand when we're starting to go down that slide towards the slippery slope. And I, I'm not big on slippery slope arguments, but I think in the First Amendment, they have a little bit more merit in the sense that once you go down that road of, say, banning offensive speech of certain types, um, who's to say that you're not going to ban other types of speech or other types of offensive speech? And so I think that the First Amendment, I, the reason why I picked the First Amendment in particular is because I think we can learn more about what the what the essential, essential liberty uh, in the in the First Amendment is all about, what free speech means, and what free exercise means, uh, by looking to other countries that have suppressed those various very very rights. And I have no doubt that that, that they did it in the most extreme way possible. But they went down that slippery slope too, right? They start out by limiting some things and then limiting more and more. And so I think that we can learn lessons where the line um, by what happens in other countries. I'm not suggesting that we depart from the original meaning of the First Amendment, although the Supreme Court has arguably already done so. Uh, uh, but I am suggesting that we can learn lessons about where, where to draw the line or where the line should be drawn. Great. Um, uh, related to judge. that are a couple of questions that we've gotten from the audience, uh, all anonymous, which is interesting. Uh, we certainly, uh, at Cato, are in favor of anonymous speech uh, as well uh, and, and the freedom for uh, of private association and things like that, uh, but including from people who say that their parents uh, or grandparents were also Holocaust survivors, but for example, uh, would uh, were not of mixed feelings about allowing Nazis to, to march in America. Uh, this person says they knew how anti-Semitic propaganda was in fact a clear and present danger that it can happen here. And uh, to conflate with another uh, related question that perhaps there's something different be between what the Nazis were pushing and simply offensive or disagreeable speech. Is there a way to draw that line? Is there a clear and present danger for some sort of, I don't know, violence or, or hatred spreading that leads to violent speech? You know, there, I'm, Eugene's even more of an expert on the First Amendment than I am, but um, I think it's a hard line to draw. I mean, obviously, for um, uh, there is that clear and present danger uh, exception in the, in the court's jurisprudence, and um, it's a pretty pretty hefty standard to get up there. Um, but um, I think that a lot of people today think merely offensive speech, right? the fence, some particular group, the neo-Nazis exam example, that that should somehow be restricted. I hear more and more at academic institutions around the country from friends of mine that say, maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't hurt people's feelings. Maybe we should make sure that, um, that speech doesn't, you know, trigger people and stuff like that. I'm all for that as a practical matter. I don't want to insult anybody gratuitously, but at the same time, um, you know, it's constitutionally protected speech. So people should be able to speak out. And um, I think that, uh, you know, there, I think that the Supreme Court probably has it right. I might have drawn the line a little bit further in favor of free speech than the Supreme Court has. Um, but certainly it's, it is a hard line to draw. If I could just speak briefly to that. Uh, my, my thinking is in the future, all of us will be Nazis for 15 minutes. 
which is to say that whatever views we have are going to be analogized to Nazis or be going to be just down the slippery slope from the Nazis. Uh, you, it's interesting, one of the questions you said, well, obviously we shouldn't let the Nazis march because after all, anti-Semitism is dangerous. And I totally agree anti-Semitism is dangerous, but not already the slippage. The Nazis weren't just anti-Semites, right? If they were just garden variety anti-Semites, there would be a lot fewer, fewer deaths. Um, uh, so from the, from the advocacy of extermination of Jews to anti-Semitism, already we see, unfortunately, uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, uh, during the Trump administration, the, I believe the Department of Education was promulgating um, uh, guidelines that, that urged universities to treat sharp criticism of Israel as anti-Semitism. And by the way, I think some of sharp criticism of Israel is motivated by anti-Semitism, but the fact is, you know, you have to, people have to be free to criticize the, uh, uh, a foreign government, just like they're free to criticize our government. Uh, likewise, we very common to see, oh, you know, anti-gay uh, uh, speech, including, for example, speech defending uh, the rights of people not to video uh, record same-sex uh, marriages. They're bigots. They're just as bad as the Nazis, or if not exactly, that's something pretty close. Uh, so if, you know, if, if somebody could, could snap their fingers and it's all Nazis, all of a sudden, you know, they just, they got some, some, there's some weird mental block that keeps them from, 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 uh, uh, uttering Nazi propaganda, you know, that would not be good libertarian thing to do. Uh, but you could say yeah, maybe, you know, just this once, but it's never just this once, right? Uh, any such doctrine is going to be easily and quickly deployed to, to go more broadly, just as in the 1950s, everybody was a communist for 50 minutes. Maybe not everybody, everybody, but anybody who was sort of left and center. If you're not a communist, well, maybe you're a fellow traveler. Maybe, maybe you're a communist sympathizer. Maybe you interacted with some pro-communist groups in some way. Uh, so that's the real danger. It's never limited to just the Nazis, any kind of, this, of restriction like Okay, we have a question. And by the way, again, I'll remind those of you watching on whatever platform, you can either input your question on Cato's page or otherwise use the hashtag Cato SCOTUS. We have a question from Red Phoenix on YouTube. Can courts ever mandate speech? That is, you must say something. Can they force you to say words or a specific statement? And I'll add, would it be a good idea uh, to be able to uh, compel speech in, in certain circumstances? Well, so, so I, wow. Uh, oh, go ahead. Okay. Uh, no, you, uh, you, no, you're the expert on this. You go first. So, so if the question is just whether courts can do this, it's really very rare for courts to do it on their own. The question is whether the government can do this. The answer is generally not. But, you know, there are always interesting and tough questions. So one possible question is, uh, let's say you're a professional, you're a lawyer or a doctor. We are really compelled to say certain things to our clients, right? Because otherwise it could be malpractice. If you're a doctor and you don't disclose to a client uh, certain treatment options because you think they are immoral, but the client is counting on you to give the whole picture. You never warned the client, oh, by the way, when you come to me, you should have to understand I will never counsel you in favor of, say, abortion or, uh, or contraception or whatever else. But let's say there was no such warning. And then you fail to give the client certain information. That's a violation of your duty of looking out for your client's interest and not just for your ideological beliefs. Likewise, look as a government employee, 
people can be, uh, I am a professor, I'm compelled to do a lot of things. I'm compelled to go and teach. Now it turns out that because of the history of American higher education, I'm given extraordinary latitude in what I teach and how I teach. And I think that's to the good, but that's not true for all employees. And even I, you know, the Dean could say, you should teach First Amendment law. And I say, well, no, no, I want to teach my entire class on Second Amendment law. And the Dean could say, no, no, your job is to teach First Amendment law. So again, you have flexibility of how to teach it, but I'm compelling you to do it or else you don't get your paycheck. Um, so so those, are, those are particularly clear examples, but there are others in between. Let me just close with one question. Let's say there is a libel judgment. Let's say it's proven that you lied about someone. Could you be compelled to put up on the very webpage where you had uh, uh, libeled this person, a note saying, this has been found to be libel? I'm not sure you could, I'm not sure you should, but it's actually an interesting question that I think it's worth talking about. So what immediately popped in was some of the, the examples that, that Eugene gave, and that is um, I have seen uh, district judges, I haven't sat on one of these cases, but I've reviewed cases where a district judge during sentencing may say, you have to apologize to the person who was the victim. You need to apologize and here's what you need to say, or else I might be apt to put in a harsher punishment uh, and, and sentence you to more prison time because you haven't shown remorse. Um, I've been surprised actually without commenting on how those cases would come out. I, I've been surprised that I haven't seen a compelled speech type argument um, because I think it presents some interesting questions similar to the one that Eugene presents on libel. There might be something different about that situation that I'm not thinking of, uh, but I do think it presents a very interesting, uh, interesting scenario. Well, there's also a, an Augustinian issue there, right? The Augustine, St. Augustine said that it's not really uh, virtuous if it's compelled. Well, is it is it remorse if it's a, a compelled apology? Right. Um, uh, we have a question from Dave Kahn who asks uh, for your thoughts on government regulation of Facebook content or Facebook's own regulation uh, of its content. Uh, not sure if uh, Judge Strauss's grandparents thought much about uh, Facebook uh, or possible technologies in their days, but uh, if we can extrapolate from these ideas of, um, you know, wanting to maximize the freedom of speech as a method of escaping authoritarianism, uh, how does how does this discussion, uh, this deep and philosophical and personal discussion that we've been having, relate to these issues of, of tech regulation? On this one, I'm going to defer to Eugene because I know this is this is actively winding its way through the courts. This, you know, Justice Thomas has has his recent opinion on um, on on these social media platforms, and so I'm going to try to keep my nose clean on this and not say anything that'll get me recused. But uh, but I'm sure Eugene has some thoughts. Well, I had 86 pages worth of thoughts in an article I wrote in the Journal of Free Speech Law. You search for Journal of Free Speech Law, you go to journaloffreespeechlaw.org. You're going to see our website. It has all of the articles. By the way, many of the other participants disagreed with me. It was a symposium. Um, uh, so you could see a lot of views on this. Here's my very short answer. Uh, and it's total oversimplification, but <laughs> I can read you 86 pages now and you wouldn't want me to. Um, let's look at the phone company. And not just the old line monopoly type phone companies, although even the landline monopolies aren't really monopolies, given that you can have a cable. Uh, alternative. But let's say cell phone companies, which are famously competitive. And let's say that a cell phone company says, we refuse to carry the speech of those evil Nazis or those evil Antifa or evil communists or just people who just who want us to be more heavily regulated. So we're just going to cancel their phone lines. 
They're not allowed to do that because they're treated as so-called common carriers who have to accept all comers. And part of the reason is the thought is you don't want to give these kinds of infrastructure type entities uh, the ability to leverage their political, their economic power into political power, especially given the fact that even when they're competitive, there often aren't a lot of competitors and aren't a lot of options. So we don't want them to make the decision on what is said and what is not. By the way, there's nothing to do with privacy either. Even if, if there is a publicly promoted, call this number for your local KKK recruiter, uh, 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 the phone company can't cancel that line. On the other hand, a newspaper can and probably should, and so, well, certainly should make editorial judgments about what to include and what not to, right? The reason we subscribe to some newspapers or uh, some magazines is precisely because of their editorial judgment. So the question is where in its various functions should Facebook lie on the spectrum? Should it be like a phone company or UPS or FedEx that has to basically take all comers? Or should it be like a newspaper or perhaps a bookstore where part of the value they provide is screening certain things? Uh, uh, out and, and highlighting certain things is especially especially worthwhile. That's the real question. I'm inclined to say that as to its hosting features, Facebook and Twitter and such, that just the decision whether to allow something onto their platform, they should be treated a little bit more like phone companies than like newspapers. But that's the really hard question. Is that because of their um, share of the market? Uh, for you know how you define uh, that market because you know there there is some antitrust valence here and of course in the past when there have been antitrust actions brought against whether it's Microsoft or Netscape you know very quickly those companies uh, you know before any court action uh, lost their so-called uh, uh, market power so how how can we determine that Facebook is indeed akin to a common carrier in this context? Right. So I, I don't think it's just a pure legal question. Does it fit a, a common carrier definition? Because I'm not saying existing common carrier law treats it as that. The question is, as a policy matter, should we, let's say, should Congress or should state legislatures make that decision? And by the way, these requirements of, of carriage haven't just been limited to monopolies. One of the arguments is that when there are not a lot of, uh, of options around, it's especially important. Uh, to have these kinds of non-discrimination rules, but historically they've been uh, they've been applied to other entities as well, um, and uh, uh, so I think again the question that we want to ask is, do we think that there's something dangerous for our democracy? And that, by the way, that's not the question for all common carriers by any means, uh, but in this kind of situation, something dangerous for our democracy to have these immensely powerful private entities uh, have the ability again to leverage their economic power into political power especially in a situation where the country is closely divided. They've become tremendously important vehicles for public debate. And even if they only sway a few percent of the population by their decisions to exclude something, that could be a huge uh, difference in many elections. And I uh, think a hardcore libertarian, uh, and I probably most people at Cato, and I value them for it, would say, nope, private power, just private power. Maybe we should make sure it isn't buttressed too much by undue government power, but private power is private power. We don't care. Or we do care about it, but we are so much more worried about government power. And we think regulation is just going to make a botch of everything. Perfectly plausible position, by the way, which is why I'm glad Cato and others like it are making it. Uh, at the same time, I think one could also say that uh, uh, certain kinds of rules aimed at preventing this kind of use of private power, uh, where it isn't just, oh, some operating system, or let's say some computer developers preferring one operating system over another, 
that's that's leveraging economic power into kind of a little bit more economic power, where they're trying to leverage it into into huge influence on political debate, not just through their own speech, but through blocking the speech of others. That that's something dangerous enough that needs to be regulated. That's the real question. Well, thank you. We've we've hit the hour, so I'm gonna uh, there. We've opened up a Pandora's box of questions on tech regulation, new kinds of hate speech, and so forth. But I want to uh, again exercise moderator's prerogative to bring it back to the topic of the Holocaust, escape from authoritarianism, maybe uh, the immigration experience, and what that has to do with thoughts on uh, the freedom of speech. Uh, I myself uh, next week I'm celebrating 40 years uh, having immigrated from. Uh, the Soviet Union and my father, similar to yours, uh, Eugene, uh, was born in, in 1936, has experience with, with Stalin's terror, was exiled. Thankfully, his father was posthumously rehabilitated under Khrushchev. And he was able to come back to Moscow and, and, and go to university and, and so forth. And by the way, Ilya Soman, who is not me, so hashtag Ilya Confusion, not here, uh, but we have posted his memoir of his immigration journey on the website for this event. But it leads to the question of, this immigrant experience, whether it's post-Soviet or post-Nazi, leads a lot of people to be libertarian, whether on First Amendment or on broader issues. And I'd love to gauge both of your quick sentiments on uh, why that might be and, and any other uh, thoughts on the dynamic between uh, immigration, the refugee process, and thoughts of America's foundational principles. For my grandparents, um, the answer was pretty sim simple. Um, I didn't necessarily know it at the time, but now that I've had a chance to reflect on on, on their lives and, and the things they told me, they just, just flat distrusted the government. Um, they had a natural distrust of the government and they wanted the government to stay out of their lives. Um, and, and who could blame them given the experiences they had? You know, and they pa probably passed a, a, a fair amount of that on to me um, to at least be critical of what the government's doing. Uh, that the government isn't always uh, acting in your best interest, may not be acting in your best interest a lot of the time. Um, and so um, I think that, that that definitely has had a, pro had a profound impact on them. Uh, but I, you're right, it's an interesting phenomenon. Many people who are recent immigrants or uh, you know, children or grandchildren of immigrants um, definitely come in with a libertarian bent. So uh, my parents, uh... Uh, came to America and actually they trusted the government. Uh, they didn't like economic regulation because they thought a, a lot of economic regulation, they thought it was just sort of another path towards the socialism that they saw how it actually worked or failed to work. Um, but when it came to like police powers, they thought, yeah, you know, it's perfectly fine. Like, of course, we didn't trust the Russian police because they were corrupt and run by a corrupt regime. But in America, it's better. I don't think they thought it was perfect, but uh, but they became they became more conservatives than libertarians, I think. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I think that's the real challenge for people who live in free countries, is that on the one hand we are right to distrust the government, but on the other hand, unless one really believes that anarchism works, and I don't think it does, we need government, right? We need government to protect our liberties, including our liberties from foreign invaders, again, for all of its vast, vast catalog of sins, you know, it was the Russian government that organized the resistance to the Nazis, ultimately successful at an appalling cost. And by the way, it was the Russian government also that, that damaged 
uh, the 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 army through purges and the like that that probably made the made the the attack uh, uh, as, uh, on Russia as deadly as it was. But in any event, we need to have we have the government to govern the government to protect us uh, against uh, foreign enemies, against terrorism and the like. We need to have the government protect us against crime. Crime is also an intrusion of liberty. Uh, on, on liberty. Crime also suppresses, and murder suppresses your free speech rights, uh, uh, as well as all your other rights. Uh, uh, having a gang uh, uh, running running a neighborhood suppresses your free speech rights too, because you know you can't speak out against the gang, or else you will get killed. Um, so that's the real that's the real danger. And uh, one can then debate how much further the government should go, and I don't think very much further. Uh, but part of the problem is that in order for a society, even a free, especially a free society to survive, to, to, to continue being free, it has to be able to provide its citizens with a protection against enemies, foreign and domestic, especially again, or against criminals, let's say you might say foreign and domestic, uh, or, else, or else it will either be destroyed or the citizens will seek out a, a more authoritarian, but, all, but at, least, at least safer place to live. And that's always the challenge, I think, sort of people, whether they're libertarian instincts or conservative or even liberal instincts, have to recognize both the danger of too much government, very serious danger, and the danger of too little or of the wrong kind. That's, that's the real problem. Well, that's a wonderful note to end this event on. Uh, thank you very much to Judge Strauss for his uh, well-considered, profound, and personal uh, remarks. Thank you to... Professor Volokh uh, for his uh, intellectual erudition uh, in and his own personal gloss uh, on that. Um, with that, uh, I think we are adjourned. Thanks very much, everyone.